I think that governments play an extremely important role in increasing the use of evidence and data, but citizens do too. I'm J.B. Wogan from Mathematica. Welcome back to On the Evidence, a show that examines what we know about today's most urgent challenges and how we can make progress in addressing them. My guest today is Jed Herman, Vice President for State and Federal Policy Implementation at Results for America. Jed, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. So first, for people who aren't familiar with Results for America, could you briefly explain who you are and what you're about? Sure. Results for America is a national nonprofit. We work with government at all levels to help them increase their use of evidence and data as tools to get better outcomes. So specifically, we're helping decision makers harness the power of data and evidence to solve the world's greatest challenges. That means investing in what works and making that the new normal. So when policymakers are trying to answer a question, they start by looking at the best data and evidence and then make the decision based on that. All right. We're we're talking on Tuesday. We're talking ahead of a release of a report that will come out on Friday called the State Standard of Excellence Report. And uh, so for the uninitiated, what, what is that and what do you hope to accomplish? Well, the State Standard of Excellence looks at how state governments use evidence and data to improve their outcomes and get better results for their residents. It has three purposes. One is to create a national standard for using evidence and data in state government. Two is to showcase examples of what the best governments are doing to use that evidence and data. And three is to provide a roadmap for other governments to increase their use of evidence and data to get better outcomes. And so success really is three things. One is states are adopting ideas from other states, seeing things in the state standard of excellence uh, and implementing those in their own states. Two, uh, states are growing the number of criteria in the state standard of excellence that they are achieving in. Uh, There are 15 criteria, uh, and so growing the number that each individual state is achieving uh, success. And then third, obviously, is better outcomes, so lives improved and dollars saved. So in terms of those 15 criteria in the state standard, that goes everything from goal setting to gathering data to using that data to invest in what works to spending that that data better and making sure when when that money is not getting results, investing it in things that are going to get better results. So, So one related question. One could imagine a different version of this report handing out grades or rankings to states and shaming those who are behind the curve. But this report focuses on leaders and promising examples instead. Tell me why you went with that more positive approach. Well, I think first, at Results for America, we really want to highlight what states and governments at all levels are doing that is successful, that is getting results. We're very focused on what are those outcomes, how do we improve lives. So we want to highlight those success stories. We want to create the demand in government to use evidence and data more. And so focusing on positive outcomes is a really strong way to do that. Uh, second is in creating the state standard of excellence. We talked about 100 different, 150 different people, uh, former state officials, folks at think tanks, including our state standard advisory committee that helps us create the annual state standard of excellence. And they told us almost unanimously, don't grade state governments. You want to create a positive environment uh, where you're helping people to do that. You're encouraging them and not shaming them. And so I think what we've seen is by recognizing states like we did in this year's State State of Excellence, where we recognize five states as leading the way, Colorado, Washington, Utah, Minnesota, and Oregon, and three states as rising stars, Maryland, North Carolina, and Nevada, really see that encouragement, encourages states to do more and, and means that other states look at what those states are doing and emulate their examples to increase their use of evidence and data. And so just a few examples of what that looks like, what that success looks like for state governments. Uh, In Indiana, they created something called the Management Performance Hub, which brings together data from a multitude of state agencies and applies it to current policy problems, so things like opioid overdoses, vehicle crashes, uh, and they estimate through this data they've been able to gather and analyze 
that's had a return on investment of $40 million to the state. Uh, in Minnesota, uh, last year during their budget process, they asked state agencies about what evidence supported their proposed investments. As a result of that, they were able to make $87 million in new investments in the fiscal 2020 budget cycle. In Pennsylvania, they looked at community corrections, and they used a results-based contract where they rewarded those providers that achieved their goals. They found that results-based contract, which rewarded providers that reduced recidivism, was able to reduce by 35% over three years the amount of recidivism. Wow. Okay, so you've just highlighted some of the bright spots in the report for 2019. You, You put out one of these last year. What's changed since last year? That's a great question. So I think in the state standard of excellence this year, we found a large increase in the number of examples of states using data and evidence at a best-in-class way. The state standard of excellence looks at what are the outstanding examples of data and evidence use. And so last year, we identified 88 examples across the 15 criteria in the state standard of excellence. This year, we identified 125 different examples. So a large growth in the amount of data and evidence best practices and policies that state governments are using. We noted that expanded number of states. It went from 30 states to 33 states. We noted large increases, especially in the workforce area, so workforce development, where there was a 300% growth in the number of examples, and in education, where there was a 400% growth in the number of examples. Now, a lot of this is perhaps driven by actions at the federal level, uh, including the Workforce Investment Opportunity Act and the Every Student Succeeds Act, which have strong evidence and data provisions, so encouraging state workforce and education agencies to increase their use of evidence and data, uh, but also states taking up examples from other states and following examples that had been for the previous year. So really seeing a lot of positive growth in state governments for using evidence and data to improve results. Okay. Even even with the more than 100 bright spots that you're highlighting, I've noticed that there's a lot of variation. States are, you know, all, all across the spectrum in terms of how advanced they are with data and evidence practices. So what, what would you identify as one or two major bottlenecks or barriers that are preventing states from making progress in this area? Well, I think the two key ingredients that state governments need to have to make effective investments using evidence and data. One is capacity. So that means people, having the people that are trained to know how to do this work, data analysts, database decision makers. Uh, but that also means having structures and policies that they can have in place to guide the work of those people. Two, I think state governments really need, and government at all levels, need to have strong leadership. So people that believe in the value of data and evidence are asking the question when decisions come to their desk, what does the data show us? What does the evidence show us? How are we going to get better results using that? And so I think those are two really key capacity things. You know, I think one way as an organization we're trying to address that is working with state governments, both through the state standard of excellence, which provides examples of what outstanding practices are in use of evidence and data, but two, doing more focused trainings with state governments. Uh, We've partnered with the National Governors Association to do something called a What Works Boot Camp that takes a small group of states and helps equip them to better use evidence and data in their evidence work and their policy management and budget decisions. And so I think those are really important things. And then as in terms of specific bottleneck, I would point to data as a big stumbling block for a lot of governments, especially state governments. I hear the agencies, even within the same state, under the same administration, often struggle to share data on clients because of Uh, privacy concerns. How are the states featured in this report addressing those concerns and moving forward with data sharing? I think there are a lot of misconceptions about how data can be used and what privacy rules are. Uh, That stems at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level. I think what the best states are doing uh, is they are clearing the air on that by requiring data sharing money agencies and requiring, as they did in Ohio, Innovate Ohio is a new initiative of Governor DeWine there, where he required as part of an executive order all state agencies to share data And if there was a 
data could not be shared to identify in writing the specific legal prohibition that did not allow for the sharing of the data. That kind of approach of presuming data sharing and only allowing it to be blocked where there's a specific legal prohibition is a very strong model. Arizona's taken a similar approach and have, has created something called an enterprise memorandum of understanding where all their state agencies are signing on to say, we're going to share data uh, between our agencies. And so that approach to common sense privacy, looking at what the legal prohibitions are, and there are some good ones, and that's not to say there aren't, uh, but identifying what they are and making sure that they can be addressed, I think, is a very effective approach. And just for an example of what success can look like, the Washington State Department of Social and Health Services has created an integrated client database that brings together data from 10 state agencies, more than 40 systems, and includes data on 2.4 million people. Using that data, they were able to reduce costs in their Medicaid program by better identifying high users, and they've saved tens of millions of dollars just through integrating their data better. Okay. I couldn't help but notice that the report doesn't list any examples for states or even state agencies investing at least 1% of program funds on evaluation. So I, I, I guess I just wanted to know, what do you, what do you make of that? You know, I was wondering if maybe it's that evaluation is still too expensive for states or, or that the people who make investment decisions aren't seeing enough of an ROI on it. But what, what do you think? Yeah, I think first it's important to recognize that evaluation is really important. As an organization, we believe that governments should invest 1% of their money in evidence and evaluation. So that says of every dollar you spend, you spend one cent to see how effective the other 99 cents are. Uh, and in fact, that evaluation often doesn't happen. A recent survey of federal managers found that 57% either did not know if their program had been evaluated or knew their program had not been evaluated within the last five years. That tells us we need to do more. And so I think there's a life cycle of in investing in evaluation. So the federal government, I think, is fairly fair along in that life cycle, has been at this for 20 to 30 years. Uh, recent legislation, such as the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act and the Every Student Succeeds Act, have mandated the Department of Education and the Department of Labor to set aside percents of funds uh, in the Department of Labor. They are allowed to set up up to 0.75% of workforce training funds to focus on evidence and evaluation. At the Department of Education, up to 0.5% of K-12 funds. So I think that we see there is a life cycle where the federal government is increasing to do this. And there's broad support among the American people. Results from America recently did a poll and found that 84% of Americans support investing at least 1% in evidence and evaluation. So I think the federal government is a long way along this pathway. State governments are making progress to uh, achieving that more. Okay. I imagine a lot of the listeners to this podcast consider it welcome news that states are adopting policies and practices that incorporate data and evidence into their work. What is one thing that a researcher or a research organization listening today could do to be more of an ally in keeping the evidence-based policy movement going at the state level? The most important stumbling block for state governments in being able to use evidence and data to achieve better outcomes is capacity. Oftentimes, there's a lack of capacity in terms of their ability to evaluate specific programs. That's where outside researchers can certainly come in, do what we call research practice partnerships, where they're helping governments, in this case state agencies uh, or governor's offices, evaluate the effectiveness of their program. Oftentimes, this is a great synergy. Outside researchers are working on a specific piece of policy research. The state government has a lot of data around that, administrative and other data. There's a great synergy in terms of researchers being able to do the research they're interested in and state government getting information on the effectiveness of their programs. Second is I think it's great to create partnerships across sectors. That's academic institutions, that's nonprofits, that's state governments. When all those people are working together to use evidence and data and there's an ecosystem created in the state, 
that is a very positive development. So for example, in Colorado, they've created the evidence-based policy collaboration, which brings together all those players, creates a single definition of what evidence-based means, uh, has different tiers, what's strong evidence, what's moderate evidence, so that everyone is operating at the same level. So when researchers are doing their research, nonprofits are making their decisions around evaluations, the executive, the governor's office is defining what evidence-based is. When the legislature is funding that, they're all using the same definition. So I think researchers play a very important role in informing those in government and those in the nonprofit sector about what is good evaluation, what that looks like, and helping them conduct it. Some of our listeners have likely heard of the book Results for America published in 2014, Moneyball for Government, which was a national bestseller and a riff on Michael Lewis's book Moneyball about using data and baseball to get better results, even on a relatively small budget. What's the, what's the, the parallel for state governments in terms of you know, the, the, the thesis that you all are making about uh, squeezing the most out of tax dollars, finding the most value in, um, in the programs that state governments are funding? I think there are two really important parts of government spending money effectively. One is during the budgeting process, how are we evaluating whether our programs are evidence-based? How are we looking to make sure that we're proposing the best programs? So that's something as simple as asking during the budget gathering process, asking state agencies, what is the level of evidence behind this program which you are proposing? What results has, has it achieved? And then two, to put that into action, uh, that means working with state legislatures to make sure that that is carried through the budget process. And then also when agencies are spending that money, having them spend money in a way that is prioritizing evidence-based interventions. So that's something as simple as asking on a grant application, what is the evidence behind the intervention you propose? Now, there are many more complicated ways to do that. You can have tiered evidence structures where you assign specific points for strong, moderate, or preliminary levels of evidence. But asking the simple question of, what, is that, what does the evidence show us when you're giving dollars out to grantees, that's to nonprofits, to contractors, to others, means that you're going to achieve better results because you're using evidence of effectiveness to find out beforehand, before you invest, what you can expect. Two examples. In Nevada, the State Department of Education is investing 100% of their federal Title I funds in evidence-based interventions. Wow. Two years ago, they had been investing 15%. They're seeing results in terms of improved test scores. In Minnesota, we've seen how a federal investment from the Corporation for National Community Service to fund an AmeriCorps program has achieved great results. Specifically, the Corporation for National Community Service included up to 12 points out of 100 in their grant application for those interventions that had strong levels of evidence. The Minnesota Reading Corps, which is run by the State Service Commission, which is a part of the governor's office, is investing that money from the Corporation for National Community Service to hire AmeriCorps tutors to work in schools to help students read on grade level. What Minnesota Reading Corps has strong evaluations. They've shown that students in kindergarten that have a Minnesota Reading Corps AmeriCorps tutor achieve twice as well as students without those tutors. By prioritizing evidence of effectiveness in the federal grant program, that may allowed the Minnesota Reading Corps to receive up to 30% more money and allowed them to serve 6,000 additional students that are now achieving better results and are more likely to read on grade level because of the prioritization of evidence in a federal grant program. Okay, so end of every interview, I always like to ask uh, some variation of this question of, you know, was there anything I should have asked but didn't? Was there any question that you wish I had asked but haven't yet? I think it's really important to focus on the value that people can get out of data and evidence and what that means. I think most Americans expect the best from their government. They want their government to get the best results, but they often don't know how that happens or how that can happen. 
So by pressing their governments to use data and evidence, that means asking for performance reports. That means urging their legislatures and their executives to use data and evidence. They can see the results that are happening in their communities by seeing how those programs are implemented with better results and how that benefits them. So I think that governments play an extremely important role in increasing the use of evidence and data, but citizens do too. Okay, perfect. Jed, thank you so much for talking with me today, and uh, I will be sure to link to the 2019 State Standard of Excellence on the blog that we'll publish along with this podcast, and um, I might pull out a few links to the specific state examples that you mentioned on this episode so people have, are e- able to find them easily. Great. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to talk about how governments can increase the use of evidence and data and what outcomes that can achieve for people. Thanks again to our guest, Jed Herman of Results for America. We'll provide a link to the 2019 State Standard of Excellence in the show notes. In full disclosure, I did want to mention that I was one of about two dozen volunteer advisory committee members for this year's State Standard of Excellence, mostly advising Results for America on ways to make this work accessible to the media and state policymakers. One of my ideas, frankly, was to feature a guest like Jed talking about this work on my podcast. And so here we are. As always, I want to thank you for listening to another episode of On the Evidence. To support the show, please consider subscribing on your podcasting platform of choice. You can also keep up with the show by following me on Twitter at JBWogan.